welcome to the Messy Antics Podcast, a podcast about all things Messianic Judaism. Each episode, we will be sharing our opinions as we tackle some of the biggest issues in Messianic Judaism. Now, here's your hosts, Rabbis Eric, David, Jonathan, and Toby. Hey guys, uh, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Messy Antics Podcast. Uh, again, as uh, uh, previously discussed, Rabbi Eric is not with us on this particular day that we're recording this episode. He is on the uh, intercongregational cruise that Bridam uh, Messy Antics and AI orchestrates every year. Um, and uh, so we hope that they're having a great time getting some relaxation in. Um, but uh, nonetheless, Rabbi Toby, Rabbi Jonathan, and myself, Rabbi David are here, uh, and we are... Uh, Wanting to talk today, actually, about in in this season of the Torah cycle uh, in in synagogues, we are reading the uh, in essence the four parshot that give us the Exodus narrative or the narrative of Israel leaving uh, uh, Egypt um, and the plagues and everything that goes into that. And so today we wanted to just kind of have a conversation about some of the most the, the the aspects of the Exodus narrative that really impact us the most, stand out to us the most, give us the most um, kind of thought provoking questions and conversations uh and and have an organic conversation about that so rabbi toby i'm gonna let you kind of kick this off yeah well actually my kickoff is kind of a an onside kick to uh rabbi david to field i'm (laughs) no because we were having an interesting conversation violated (laughs) it was a um interesting conversation on the way here actually this morning we were driving to pensacola and we were having a very interesting conversation about the life of Moses because Moses is seen as a baby, and then suddenly we go to his adult life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, God has the Torah written out for very specific reasons, the way he has it out, the information that God gives us and the information that he omits is all for a reason. It's the same with Yeshua. Baby, we see him as a, a child, and then we see him as an adult. So, um, and for those of us who are students of the Bible, and uh, uh, David, who's studying, who's a biblical scholar, studying to be that biblical scholar, um, you can't help but wonder what went on in those those years. And David and I had an interesting conversation about Moses's early life because he was raised a gypsy, you know, uh, he, he, you know, this was a time when Pharaoh was, uh, you know, putting the uh, uh, the, the children of Israel were were, were put under slavery. Uh, the babies were being killed, the male babies, correct? Yep. And um, Moses' mother uh, hid him and sent him down this. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, Moses is actually an Egyptian name. Uh, and and because so she uh, because Moses' birth mother sends him down uh, the river in a basket, and he where he is discovered by uh, Pharaoh's daughter, who takes him as her own. She just falls in, which is this is the Lord. This is what God's doing. It's all part of God's plan. Because she was Egyptian, she was the daughter of Pharaoh. So by all means, she should have been like, well, this is a Hebrew baby. You know, so, you know, well, he should die. But she falls in love with this baby, yeah. takes him in, and then. And we so from that we can we can um, from that we can uh, we can concur or we can we we, we, surmise, we, can, yeah. we can surmise yes thank you that Moses was raised in the household of Pharaoh and you know we've watched the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston about how he was this you know big wig in in, 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 in in Egypt and then in the course in the Prince of Egypt he's you know the son of the Pharaoh and he's he's you know he's just living life in the lap of luxury yeah. but David and I had a very interesting discussion about. Um, 
Moses' early life. And one of the things that David said that I never it never occurred to me was that it's quite possible that Moses was could possibly have been was being groomed to be Pharaoh. And I just kind of, you know, just we're throwing that out there at the very beginning of Exodus, and I just thought that's a great way to start, is, you know, your thoughts, I guess, expounding a little more on what we talked about, about the early life of Moses and how that affected his hesitation to want to do what he had to do and probably why the children of Israel reacted so harshly to him initially, right? Yeah, so so I think Moses is a really interesting character in general for a bunch of reasons. I mean, one of it is like, much like with Melech David, with King David, we see this great leader of Israel, and we also see the very human nature of who he is, right? The struggles that he has, the the fears, the doubts, the concerns that he has, uh, and so on, and how that affects um, his leadership and, and his interaction with, with the people and so on. And in particular, what we see in Moses' life, as Rabbi Toby was just saying, is um, Moses is raised in Pharaoh's household for the majority of the first 40 years of his life. In essence, the first 40 years of his life, he is yeah. raised realistically as the grandson uh, of Pharaoh, you know, adopted grandson, whatever you want to call it, but as the grandson of Pharaoh. And for all intents and purposes, whether there was ever an end goal of him possibly being Pharaoh or not, if you are in the lineage of Pharaoh, in the household of Pharaoh, uh, you are being raised with the potentiality that you could one day sit on Pharaoh's throne. And so uh, I, I believe that it's very likely that Moses was being raised not just as a grandson of Pharaoh, but as a potential predecessor to the throne of Egypt. Um, at least in the perspective of of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and Pharaoh would have had to have known he was Hebrew. Correct. I wonder how uh, he dealt with and, how and that was possible. I, right. What I think is really interesting is if you think about the the way that God operates. Right. God prepares us for what God wants us to do long before we ever realize what God wants us to do. Yeah. Right. Um, so, if, for instance, if you're going into ministry, one of the best things you can do is to to either go to school for leadership and ministry uh, and, and learn the the qualities of leadership and learn what leadership truly looks like, learn how to be a servant leader, et cetera, learn how to you know um, approach the Bible with healthy hermeneutics, learn how to, to preach and, and, and things like that, uh, to serve as a mentee under a congregational leader and uh, and learn how to, to do the day-to-day, you know, kind of get your hands dirty in ministry. What does this really look like? Um, but Pharaoh... Because Moses was raised in Pharaoh's household, Pharaoh was being trained, uh, in essence, intrinsically, and his role as the grandson of Pharaoh was being trained how to be a leader, how to lead a nation. Little did anybody know, outside of, of, of Hashem, little did anybody know that, yes, he was being trained to lead a nation, but it wasn't the nation that anybody would have thought. It was the nation of Israel, right? Because right. Moses, for all intents and purposes, was raised as an outsider among his own people. Right. right, and the Torah tells us that it, th- there came a point, and as Moses was in his, in essence, his fortieth year of life, or approaching his fortieth year of life, it came a point that he suddenly kind of caught a revelation of the suffering of his people, the Hebrews. Because he would have had to have known long before what was going on. Correct. I mean, he witnessed it, he saw it, but I don't think that he had that connection to the suffering. Like, I don't think it was something that he had internalized as as his own experience, because it wasn't his experience. He was one of the Hebrews, but it wasn't his experience, because his experience was drastically different than the, the Hebrews that were raised in slavery uh, in, in Egypt. And so, 
he had this awakening, if you would, to the suffering of the people of, of Israel, and his heart broke for them. And then we see him murder uh, uh, um, an Egyptian, uh, an Egyptian slave master, taskmaster, whatever you want to call it, yeah. because he was he was being harsh and, and and abusive to another Hebrew. And then the Hebrews, because you know he's he's raised as an Egyptian. As far as the the Israelites are concerned, this is just another Egyptian, right? Right. What, what difference does it make that you know? Because remember, he was hidden. I I don't even know that there's anything. In the Torah that that tells us specifically that the Israelites had any clue that Moses was a Hebrew. Yeah, because Moses was a Egyptian name. Correct. And so here you have Moses being raised as an Egyptian, potentially being raised to maybe one day sit on the throne of Pharaoh himself, mm-hmm. that God calls out to lead, lead Israel. And it appears as though there's this... Um, I think that that awakening to the plight and the suffering of, of Israel, I think, was that moment that he started to kind of fill that call. And then we see him run away, and he spends another 40 years separate from the people of Israel. Yeah. So he's now spent 40 years separate from Israel. Then he runs away, and he spends another 40 years separate. So when he finally comes back again uh, to to Egypt in, in Exodus 4, and he's relaying to, with Aaron, relaying to the, the Hebrews that, hey, God sent me. He's heard your cries. He's heard your pleas. He's remembered you. He's remembered his covenant. He's going to take you out of here um th- there wasn't that connection to him right and i think right. to some degree maybe the 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 slave generation of israel didn't necessarily have the 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 trust especially in the early days the trust of of moses as that uh that leader of israel because of the fact that they only knew him as an egyptian yeah um and then and then he runs away and then he comes back again out of the blue and and everything gets really in turmoil for israel because the tables are flipped upside down their slavery becomes more harsh their suffering becomes more harsh but yeah it's a really interesting thing to 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 look at and to contemplate on is that moses was not raised as an Israelite, as a Hebrew, he was raised as an Egyptian. He was raised, in essence, as a grandson of Pharaoh to sit on the throne of Pharaoh, maybe, one day. And I'm not saying that like that was the end goal of Pharaoh, but he was raised, in essence, potentially to sit on the throne of, of Pharaoh. Um, but yet God was schooling him if you would, on the the role of a leader and what mm-hmm. a leader, what leadership looks like, etc., just not for maybe what he thought it was for. Yeah, I think uh, probably one of the best... Uh discussions about that is you know in acts stephen uh, talks about you know moses was uh instructed in all the wisdom of the egyptians and he said and stephen says he was mighty in his words and his mm-hmm. works mm-hmm. and you know it always strikes me it's funny that stephen says that um because moses is the one that you know when god's like hey i don't speak so good i don't uh, right. a weak tongue a weak and mouth, you had you something know? to say about that too david yeah. about why possibly yeah and, and you know so there is this idea that yeah he would be trained for possibly for the seat of pharaoh and i think and i spoke about this a little bit last shabbat was that um you know for, for whatever reason god directs his attention when he mentions pharaoh he talks he mentions the king of egypt and pharaoh almost as like as if they're the same person but still different mm-hmm. um and you know pharaoh comes from the egyptian word uh which means great house and so it's there is kind of like this idea that you know if for example if you have let's say three or four young men or three or four young sons in your synagogue right. your quote-unquote your house you know and they're your disciples you're training each one of them up to be a, a, lead, a leader in, in in some sense, so you know the idea of of being in Pharaoh's house, living in Pharaoh's house, means you're a part of that great house, which means you would learn how to uh, not only lead and serve that great house, but to preserve uh, that great house. And as a, as a, as a leader, as an elite, that means um, yeah, you've got to learn some of the skills that Pharaoh uses, namely uh, speaking, being able to you know stand in front of the people with boldness. Um, you know, you're probably a strong, athletic person. 
Huh. Do you think that means, and it's for both of you, that, sure. uh, do you think that means, just a quick, quick fire question, do you think Moses took part in worshiping the gods of Egypt? I, mm. I think he likely did. That's a good question. Um, I, I mean, <clears throat> whether it was his own personal faith and, and belief or not, I, I can't speak to that. But I, again, we can only look at the at the text as the historical document that it is in the regards to it tells us he was raised in Pharaoh's household so he would have been raised to live as an Egyptian yeah. um, to, to walk as an Egyptian yeah, and the thing so, we have to remember too uh, with, like with that question which is a great question Toby mm-hmm. um, that uh, you know the ancient world was you know and today especially you know living in a you know Judeo-Christian society you know there, there's like this idea that you have to be loyal to um, you know your God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, yeah. that exists in the Torah as well with Israel. Um, but in the ancient world, whether you were Egyptian, whether you were Roman or Greek, like, gods were just gods. You had different yeah. gods of the regions. Like, it, it was kind of like you can worship whatever god you yeah. want. There is no decrying loyalty to yeah. any one god until Israel. Israel. Now, right. what's really interesting with that, you know, you're asking, did, did, did Moses, you know, worship the gods of Egypt and so on? Um, you know, the, the fact that the very first major issue that Israel runs into in terms of their um, fealty to Adonai is at Sinai with the golden calf. Um, and oh, historically yeah. speaking, a calf was actually one of the gods of, of Egypt. Mm-hmm. And so really what they did was Moses was on the mountain for a little too long. They were not sure what was going to happen. They figured he was dead up there and they said, okay, well, let's turn back to what we've always known. Uh, honestly, there's a very fair chance that the first generation of Israelites out of Egypt who were all raised in slavery in Egypt were likely uh, adherents to Egyptian paganism themselves sure. because that was all they would have known. Right. Um, That's why one of the first commands you should have no other gods. Exactly. Exactly. And then immediately after that, you see the golden calf. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just it's 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 crazy to think about, and we don't usually put two and two together. That's one of the why one of the major things I talk about in dealing with the first and second generation of, of Israel, and why I think the first generation of Israel out of Egypt wasn't able to take the promised land was because all they knew was the provision of Egypt. Right? right. So when they're out in the wilderness having to trust in the miraculous provision of the hand of God, they don't have a, a context for that. Even though they were slaves and they've now gone through this tremendous freedom moment, they don't have a context or an understanding and they of that. Sh- they, they said many times throughout, let's go back. Exactly. Exactly. That was kind of their, their go-to response. Oh, things suck right now. Let's go back to Egypt where things didn't suck as bad. Um, which obviously, we as hum- humans, we have a tendency to forget how bad things used to be. Uh, and, and that's exactly what happened. They were like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Maybe we were slaves. But was it really that bad? I mean, at least we had food to eat and, you know, leeks and onions and garlic and what right. have you, uh, as you brought up the other day when we were talking. The leeks. Uh, but the, uh, the, <laughs> the reality, though, is that the, the second generation of Israel out of Egypt, all they knew was the divine provision. All they knew was the miraculous provision from the hand of God. They knew yeah. that they had clothes that never wore out for 40 years. They knew they had shoes that never wore out for 40 years. They always had food waiting at their door every morning when they woke up, uh, six days a week, ready to go. Uh, they, I mean, God miraculously provided, and all they knew was to trust in the miraculous provision of Hashem, and that was it. Uh, so when it came time to take the promised land, it required the second generation to uh, have the heart and the mentality to trust in the provision, the miraculous provision of God for that victory. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, you had brought up, uh, Toby, about my, my thoughts on Moses and his uh, not being uh, Skilled. A, a good speaker. Um, 
personally, and this is just my own hypothesis, my own theory. Um, you know, obviously, a lot of people have always talked about maybe Moses had some sort of speech impediment or something along those lines. And my my theory is is actually a little bit different. I don't know that it was a speech impediment as much as Moses was raised for forty years in Pharaoh's house, uh, speaking Egyptian, uh, living as an Egyptian, and then he spent forty years in Midian uh, in the house of a Midianite priest. Mm. Um, I don't think Moses had a, a, a command of the Hebrew language that uh, he thought a leader of Israel would have needed, and I don't think that he had a command of communicating to the Israelites in the way that he thought was needed. Like, he knew how to communicate to the Egyptians, but not necessarily to the Hebrews. And as a member of Pharaoh's household, he wouldn't have had a lot of interaction with the Hebrews. Yeah. Um, so I, I actually think that it had less to do with him having a speech impediment as much as Hebrew was just not a native tongue to him at that point in time, mm-hmm. um, especially after 80 years of being removed from his parents' household in, in that context. And uh, and I think that's really where the debate came in was, oh, well, I'm not so good at this. And God said, yeah, but that doesn't matter. This isn't, you're not doing this in your strength. You're doing this in my strength. And I've got this for you. Just trust me and walk in this. And I'm not saying that's definitively what happened, but that's my, my, uh, my, my theory on the whole matter. Um, one of the things that I think is, is absolutely uh, phenomenally amazing, uh, especially when we talk about that first generation not knowing how to trust in the miraculous hand of God and only knowing the provision of Egypt and the second generation only knowing the miraculous hand of God, um, is that when Israel does leave Egypt, what's really interesting is that they leave Egypt with all of the gold and silver and jewelry um, that you know, they, the, God tells them, hey, go to your neighbors, knock on the doors, and ask them for all their wealth. Ask them for, and they leave with all of Egypt's wealth, which down the road are the very items that they would need in order to build the furnishings for the tabernacle. Right. So God provided, years before they ever got to the necessity to build the tabernacle, God provided all the resources needed for it um, and yeah. provided it by the hands of the Egyptians. So the tabernacle, in a lot of ways, uh, was built by resources pillaged from Egypt. In the Exodus. Um, and then beyond that, uh, Exodus 13, verse, uh, was it 13, verse 18, says that Israel left Egypt armed. Right. Well, Egypt, the, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. They didn't. It's not like they had armories tucked away in a bunker somewhere in their houses in Goshen. Where did these weapons they left with come from? They left with Egypt's weaponry. They left with Egypt's armories on their back. God had already prepared them for every battle that they were going to face when they finally crossed in the promised land. Yet when they left Egypt, because God knew the heart of that first generation, he knew that he couldn't take them by way of the Philistines first because they'd face war. And even though they were already armed and prepared miraculously for war, they didn't have the faith to step into war. No. And yeah. so God led them in a roundabout way uh, so that he could ultimately show his 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 finality of supremacy over the Egyptian deities and so on and so forth right. um, with the, the showdown at the Yom Sof or the Sea of Reeds and, and what have you. And so it's really interesting that they left... Um, they, they left Egypt with everything necessary to to build the furnishings of the tabernacle, but also left Egypt with everything necessary to fight war, even though they didn't really believe that they could, and they didn't have that that capacity mentally, emotionally, to be able to approach that themselves. Um, another thing, of course, we covered, uh, or of course these, these parshas covered, first 14 chapters, is the, um, is the plagues themselves. Yeah. Which, of course, you know, I remember thinking, as a kid, you know, growing up in Sunday school, not bashing Sunday school, but I'm just, that's where I was when I was a kid, went in Shabbat school. I just grew up thinking God was just doing all these bad things to Egypt because Pharaoh was not listening and, and, and they wouldn't was not, Pharaoh was naughty. But every single plague, all 10, was a slap in the face to a particular God, right? Yeah. They worshipped the yeah. Nile. They worshipped yeah. the sun. Yeah. And yeah. 
all these things. But I was actually talking to uh, and our a fish god, and yeah, yeah. And I was uh, actually talking to our synagogue administrator um, last night at Bible study, and I said. I don't know. I said I don't know how much you read as far as into the. Um, I don't know how much you read as far as into these plagues. I said, but you know, um, in this Parsha Vaera, it goes into the first. Uh, I think like the first uh, first few of them, and uh, it, it, one of them is the uh, flies, mm-hmm. gnats, and boils, and all those things. And I said, it, it, the Bible says, uh, the Torah says that um, the flies were there were so many that that the Egyptians were walking on them. They were, they were walking on these flies. And then, uh, of course the frogs came and by, by a certain point, the, the entirety of Egypt was filled with these dead frogs. So you can just imagine the smell, Yeah, you know, and probably the Nile reeked with being filled with blood and dead fish and all that. Yeah. I think the, the Florida equivalent or the lower Alabama equivalent, whichever would be like, Roaches, <laughs> roaches. I'm. Can you imagine? Like, I mean, and but, I've gone into houses where like parts of the house moved. You know, when you when you turn on a light, you know, there's just there were just so many roaches in a room. Mm-hmm. So it's just like I, I cannot imagine that being everywhere. Yeah, inescapable. You know, there's just yep. there was nowhere except Goshen, of course, which is where Israel yeah. was. Yeah, yeah. Which is a whole other discussion because you know you go back to the end of Genesis mm-hmm. uh, and you see that that. Um, Joseph had prepared a place for Israel in Goshen, yeah. uh, in this like tucked away place in Egypt, which really isn't that far from where their journey would begin, realistically. Yeah. Uh, but prepared this place ultimately for their protection, for their cohesiveness of a, as a, a people, and so on. Um, but then we see down the road, and it was really a divine preparation because. In Goshen, a number of the plagues were never experienced, right. like the darkness, the plague of darkness. Goshen had light. Yep. Egypt didn't, right? Uh, the the um, uh, plague of uh, the, the firstborn, the, the, the Israelites. And I actually think the, the, the blood on the doorpost was not something that God said only Israel could participate in. Right. I mean, there was a mixed multitude that left with Israel yeah. when they left. He was sure trying to let Egypt. He was trying. He, God was trying to let Egypt know he was yeah. God as well. Yeah. I, I think that there were likely uh, in that mixed multitude there were likely people that that were you know maybe other slaves in Egypt or even Egyptians themselves that went oh. God is definitely doing something. Uh, I I now we're we're you know a solid nine plagues in, and I believe that this is the God of all gods and the, the big king. Plague. Yeah. And, and yeah. you're saying there's one more coming. You tell me what to do, and I'm going to do it. And right. you know, God said, put the blood on the doorpost. I think there were likely Egyptians that put blood on the doorpost, yeah. uh, and they were part of that mixed multitude that left. Um, but it's it's just such a fascinating narrative to see. Um, and the reality is, is there's so many unique aspects to take to it, whether it's looking at the Exodus as a, um, a, a portrayal of the salvation experience, right? Because we all go through different trials and tribulations as yeah. we're, we're coming to faith and, and our early days of faith and walking through our walk with the Lord and, and so on. And we can see all these different, you know, whether you're wrestling with some of the more dynamic questions about faith um, and, and, and the Bible and such, and it's comparison kind of to the sufferings of the plagues and so on. And, um, the idea of walking in freedom and, and Israel walking across the Yom Suf and but there's also this really interesting kind of parallel in the the narrative of Israel leaving Egypt, the Exodus as a whole, 
and the birthing process of giving birth to a child. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you look at it, in essence, Egypt was the gestational womb for the nation of Israel who was being birthed out of Egypt. Uh, uh, a woman giving birth to a child goes through, especially natural birth, goes through um, uh, uh, 10 centimeters of dilation before her body is prepared to push this child out. Right. Um, and so there's this uh, this parallel between the 10 plagues and the, the 10 centimeters of dilation in preparation for the birthing um, that each of those plagues was necessary to to bring about a a readiness to push Israel out and the Hebrew term is very intentional uh, God tells Moses to that Pharaoh is going to shalach et ami to cast my people out right yeah. we look at it as Moses goes to Pharaoh and says just let my people go and be nice to them but no the the Lord says I'm I'm not going to 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 get Mo- Pharaoh to just gingerly send them out to just right. let them go yeah. peacefully he says I'm going to create an a, a means by which Israel could never come back right mm-hmm. the, it, it, we talked about I talked about this in my message on uh, uh, this past Shabbat at CMC is when Israel left Egypt Egypt was in essence a post-apocalyptic world yeah um, and so there was nothing in Egypt for Israel to come back so to. Mad Max exactly. environment. Exactly. There Probably. was nothing for Israel to come back to. Um, and so you went through this birthing process, and then they're sitting at the Yom Suf, which is an image of the birth canal. The waters part just like the waters break in a natural mm-hmm. birthing scenario. And and the the baby, which is this infantile nation of Israel, uh, crosses through after the waters part, the waters break, they cross through this uh, you know parallel of a birthing canal coming out to the other side as an infantile nation. Uh, and we all, uh, all three of us have kids. Now, you're, you know, Jonathan, your your child's really young, and you haven't gotten yeah. to many of these stages yet. But we all, in, in raising an infantile child into uh, adolescence, uh, what we realize is there are stages of that childhood where there are revolts. There are these battles that go, oh, I don't right. understand why we got to do this. This is stupid. Why do we got to do this? I don't know. You know, the, the, the child doesn't want to listen. They don't want to behave. And there's, you know, this, this back and forth, just like Israel in the wilderness with their back and forth with the Lord. Um, so it's this really interesting parallel of the birthing of this nation. Uh, and the birthing of a child and the raising of a child and so on that, that I always think is kind of fascinating to, to, to um, navigate through and, and look at. Mm. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, another interesting thing um, that I was that came to my mind, because it's in the current Parshas in this week's, is when um, when Moses would uh, and Aaron, you know, when, when, would perform a miracle. Uh, the Which, for, for context, because uh, you know, this isn't necessarily going to post on uh, our, our podcast specifically on yeah, the week right. of this, the Parsha that Rabbi Toby saw about, is Parsha Vayera, yeah. uh, which is the second Parsha of, uh, of Shemoth of Exodus. Yeah, they would, um, the Egyptians had magicians that could replicate these um, these miracles that, God, uh, that uh, God was doing through Moses and Aaron. Yeah. And I've heard two different... Um, takes on it. One, I've heard some rabbis teach that they were just really good with sleight of hand and magic, you know, like like magicians, right? You know? Yeah. And I've also heard, though, that they actually did tap into demonic mm-hmm. power. Yeah. Uh, where they could produce. Yeah. They could do all that until God started actually killing livestock and stuff. Yeah. So God upped the ante with every plague. Yeah. No, they couldn't produce the flies and the frogs and which the is, Which is partially why I think... I think that's why Pharaoh calls in his wise men to when Moses starts doing these things is because back to what we were talking about at the beginning where Moses was trained in all the you know the wisdom and the arts of the Egyptians you know very possibly they're thinking oh this guy you know he's been training our stuff we look dude we can do the exact same stuff you can do yeah and that's why 
you know, Moses' snake eats the other snakes to kind of prove that, well, God's yeah, you, you can do it, but nah, God is God's over. God. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I, I definitely lean towards the latter, where it's like they were tapping into, like, some serious, you know, dark spiritual power, and we're turning these things into snakes, and we're actually, you know, and I love the Prince of Egypt, that movie, you know, where, but they do they try to do the same thing with water, where they dump a little red powder in the water, and it turns... Yeah, by color, that point, but, they were using sleight of hand. Well, I don't even know if they were that. I mean, I think they were possibly actually turning it into blood. Yeah. In and the man, movie, they were Yeah, yeah, I'm just saying, in the, in the movie, but, it's kind of yeah. childish, you know, but, uh, no, I think, I think uh, like you were saying, Toby, up until... The point where livestock started dying. It just off. became where they couldn't cherry Kool Aid in. They couldn't keep Kool-Aid. up. They couldn't keep up, obviously. Um, but I, I just always thought it was interesting that um, what flavor Gatorade is the Nile today? Red. <laughs> well, because when we think of miracles, not cherry. And I'm not trying to get away from the excess, <laughs> but when we think of like when we think of power and authority and miracles, we always think of God, and we don't quite understand the fact that. You know that the adversary Hasatan has mm-hmm. power and authority on Earth as well. Yeah, and yeah. everything that he does is, in one way or another, an effort at, for lack of a better way of wording, mimicking what God does mm-hmm. for the sake of making us think it could be a God thing. Yeah. You know, I mean, for instance, the the anti Messiah. Um, in order for him to be the anti Messiah, he has to be kind of the counterfeit of the Messiah. And when we look at the the scriptures and the narrative of the anti-Messiah and what he'll do, that's exactly what he's going to do, is try to be a counterfeit of Mashiach. And so uh, it's really important for us to understand that when we're looking at, for instance, the magicians of of Egypt trying to uh, copy the, the the first couple of plagues, they're they're counterfeiting what God's doing. They're trying their and when you counterfeit somebody, it's to try to pass off a fake as the real thing, yeah, right? Of course. So you, you get a counterfeit hundred dollar bill. Uh, uh, the the whole goal to a counterfeit or counterfeiting U.S. currency or any currency is to try and produce something that is in, indistinguishable from the real thing. Yeah. And so that's what they were trying to do. They were trying, God is proving himself supreme over anything that we could think of as a God, right. uh, including Pharaoh, who was considered to be the supreme being of all uh, deities yes. uh, as far as Egypt goes. And so he's proving himself over all of these. And so they're trying to mimic going, oh, but our gods can do that too. Yada. And then I think it's the the, the fourth plague of memory serves um, where they suddenly go, oh, crap, we can't do this. This yeah. is something bigger than us. This the Torah, is- yeah, there's a part in the scripture where it says when Pharaoh's magicians couldn't do it. It's like they, yeah. they, I think there was a point where they were like, hey, we got nothing, man. Yeah. And at that point, Pharaoh's house is just kind of, Pharaoh, like, that's when Pharaoh actually has to go to Moses and say, please call this off. Yeah, right. I, I've sinned. My, pen, yeah. my people have sinned, but yeah. of course, his yeah. heart's hardened. Yeah. You know, which is another interesting thing about the heart, uh, God hardening of Pharaoh's heart. You know, could there have been any room for mercy? Yeah. Um, so that actually, the, you, you breaching that subject, it brings up a question I want to ask you guys and kind of take your thoughts on it. I mean, I have my own thoughts on it, but I want to take your thoughts on it. The Torah says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, right? Yeah. So what's your take on that? Was it literally God was making Pharaoh's heart heart hardened so that he would reject Adonai, reject Israel, etc.? Or was there was 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 there something else happening? Was the God using something that was already present or what have you? Um not to get away from this, but 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 it, it's a very similar question to, to when um uh, I believe the way the scripture words when David takes the census it says that God brought um that God, that a spirit came to, that David was like a spirit came, like consumed David and made him take mm-hmm. the senses. Like I don't, God does, God doesn't, um, you know, he doesn't just, you know, 
come to us and say, hey, you're going to sin. You're going to do something really bad. I'm going to make you do it, you know. Um, when I look at uh, the Bible as a whole, the Scripture as a whole, um, it's hard it, it, It's hard for me to wrap my mind around the fact that God would, would create a vessel just for destruction mm-hmm. and not to have any chance at redemption. Yeah. I feel like it, it's my belief that God wanted Pharaoh to see it as well. Um, but you have to understand something, too. What had been leading up to the plagues was Pharaoh had been having the Hebrews killed. Yeah. Yeah, uh, his heart was already hard, um, which foreshadows the narrative of Yeshua's birth, by the way, as well. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. What do you think, John? I think that Pharaoh had a chance, um, but I'm, I'm sure if Pharaoh had decided to repent, which he, it look, you know, there's several times where it looks like he's going to head that direction, and then you know, ultimately just says no. Because yeah, he, he could have been like Joseph's Pharaoh. Yeah, and actually, yeah. it's funny. There's a book written by C.S. Lewis. I forget the name at the time, but it's it's written as kind of a I forget the name of the book, but C.S. Lewis writes about this character who basically he, you know, gets really sick. He, you know, he's like, I'm going to die. I'm on my deathbed, you know, and then he starts promising God all these things he's going to do for him if God will make him well. And so God makes him well, removes the sickness, and then he immediately jumps right back in. He's like, oh, well, you know, I'm well now, you know, I don't yeah. need to do all these things I promised God I was going to do, and jumps right back into living a life of, um, you know, lasciviousness and all the terrible things he was doing before he got sick. Um, so I, I think Pharaoh's the same way, you know, and I, I like the word, but, you know, because English makes the words, it makes it weird. It makes it as if God has like, you know, God is the one who's making Pharaoh's heart like rock. But, you know, the, the Hebrew word, you know, chazak, you know, veya chazak, that's mm-hmm. used when his heart was making uh, it strengthened. Heart, it was strengthened. Yeah. It wasn't like he was coating it hard. Because like, when yeah. we think God hardened his heart, it, you know, God made him stubborn stubborn and resolved in the position as, yeah. as if like God was like controlling that's Pharaoh's good. outcome. God that's a good was, explanation. God was saying, strengthening Pharaoh's heart and or allowing it to be yeah. strengthened. And Pharaoh's heart, you know, when our hearts become strengthened where they already are, they continue to go in the direction they're already directed in. So if our hearts are not ready are not already aligned mm. with God's word, are not already aligned with the Spirit of God in the direction God gives us to go, it's going to be strengthened in a different direction. Right. And and, and, I, way. and I think it's that's just the dichotomy of, and, and especially when you try to, uh, when you're talking about God with people who, uh, who don't know the Lord. Yeah. Um, when you try, and one of their questions, a common question is, well, how, if God knows what we're going to do anyway, why does he give us the choice, right? Yeah. Because God says to Pharaoh, uh, excuse me, God says to Moses at the very beginning, he goes, Pharaoh will not listen. Yeah. I will have to bring you out with, yeah. a, with a powerful hand, you know, and, and, and great wonders. So he tells Moses what the end game is going to be. Yep. He knows he's already going to have to kill the firstborn. But, but just like with any of us, when we've committed sins or made bad decisions, God knows what we're going to do, but yet I still had the choice to do the right thing or the wrong thing. David, King David had the choice to do, you know, with Bathsheba. God knew what was going to happen, but yeah. David made the choice when he saw her from, from his palace. Yeah. You know, but that's just the dichotomy of free will versus God's almighty knowledge of the beginning and the end. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I think you're both on the right train of thought there. I uh, personally, I think it was less that God specifically hardened Pharaoh's heart, um, as in you know the the idea that God was active in making Pharaoh's yeah. heart harden. Because, yeah. like Rabbi Toby said, I, it, it's it's difficult to imagine an all loving God, a God who is the embodiment of love, creating somebody specifically for the purpose of destruction. Yeah. Um, and so I I, I think it's um. 
less about God intentionally hardening Pharaoh's heart and more about God is all-knowing. And God knew in advance exactly what Pharaoh's decisions and actions were going to be and used them in his purpose and plan. Not that God wanted Pharaoh to to go down this path, but that God knew the direction Pharaoh's heart was going to go either way it went. And God was using it for his purposes. Um, And and I think it's like Rabbi Jonathan was saying, you know, when you talked about the the C.S. Lewis story is uh, we all do the same thing, right? I mean, I can't tell you the number of times in my life, especially when I was younger, uh, when when Danielle and I, my my wife and I were first married, that we were struggling financially and we're like, all right, God, if you just get us through this one bill, I promise we will tie the way we're supposed to. (laughs) Right. Um, And and then, you know, he does and yeah, we don't. And then you got to try and like, oh, let's make another barter. I mean, we always try to barter with God. That's human nature. We try to barter. Um, Abraham Abraham does it. uh, Yeah, exactly. Jacob was big on it. I think about my kids. Like, I, yeah. I, my kids are phenomenal. I absolutely love my kids. But, you know, we'll ask the kids to do something. Hey, would you clean your room? Which, you know, right now we all live in a camper uh, while we're working on renoing this house. Yeah. So it's not clean, quite. Clean, clean, clean your, your corner, bed. please. Clean, point. clean your bunk. Clean your cranny. Uh, you're not going to cranny. <laughs> but, uh, but, but we would ask our kids, clean your room. Okay, well, uh, it, can, can I just have like another hour playing a video game? Or can I watch one more episode before? And we want to barter back and forth. It's yeah. just human nature. You know, we, we, we know we need to do something. We just... I do it as a you know I'm I'm working on a master's degree right now a, a MDiv a Master of Divinity and Messianic Jewish Studies with the King's University and uh, I have a really bad I, I'm naturally a terrible procrastinator and anybody that knows me especially people in our congregation they they kind of laugh at the fact that I have a tendency to put papers to the last minute and uh, and then try to bang them out really quick at the last minute to, to submit them and whatever um, we have that tendency to do that we know we have something that we need to do but we have yeah. a tendency how far can I push this till it just absolutely has to be addressed. And I think that's kind of what we see with with Pharaoh is is that God knows he's going to push. He's not going to uh, uh, give in. He's not going to do what God desires for him to do most, which is to turn his heart to him. And so God's using what Pharaoh was already going to do that God, who is all-knowing, is already aware of uh, for the purposes of of his uh, his for lack of a better way of wording, for the purposes of his end goal, which is bringing freedom to, to Israel mm-hmm. as a foreshadowing of freedom in salvation uh, through Messiah Yeshua. Yeah, I think that Pharaoh, in the end, just chose not to get over himself, yeah. which is, I'm the Pharaoh, I'm not going to listen to, you know, I'm yeah. not going to just let these people go. Yeah. Because you got to think, what does that mean for him on a, on a political scale? Um, well, even a know, religious yeah, scheme. Th- th- there you go. Yep, you're yeah, you're right. and. So, I mean, I, I just always thought that was interesting. Um, it's not that I feel bad for Pharaoh, but it's just when you read later on in Scripture when uh, I think Paul talks about, um, uh, I think, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy mm-hmm. on. I will, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and and I just chose not to have mercy on Pharaoh, and I just don't think that was what it was. I just, yeah. I just think Pharaoh chose not to go the route where he could have received God's mercy. Which yeah. is the same conversation with uh, Yaakov and Asaph, with Jacob and Esau. Uh, you know, the, the scriptures say, you know, Jacob I loved and, and Esau I hated. But did God really hate Esau? I don't think he did, no, I not think in the he, least. But I yeah. think Esau, yeah. it was Esau that didn't regard the things of God exactly. the way he should. As, yeah, as because holy, yeah. if God can have mercy on Manasseh, who was a king, and uh, uh, he was a wicked king and uh, of uh, Israel, I think. Uh, I don't know if he's, I need to think if he was Israel or Judah. But he put his, he sacrificed his kids. Yeah. This, Manasseh sacrificed his kids. Uh, then was taken into captivity, and then he prayed to God 
and it said that the Lord was moved by this guy's prayer who sacrificed his kids and brought him back to finish his kingship. But God did say, I will, uh, I will, um, God said, the consequences will fall on your son. Yeah. The kingdom, you know. But this guy, Manasseh, this king, sacrificed his own kids and and then prayed, and God was moved by his prayer. I think we have a real hard time, even believers, even strong believers who love God have a hard time, and we shouldn't. I think, I think, I think what happens is people become believers, and they start walking with God. And, and, and But so then they start, they look at, And they start to see themselves as righteous. And they are in the Lord because of what Yeshua did, not because of their righteousness. So I think we have – we suddenly set standards. And we think, well, I know God can be moved by my prayer if I lose my temper on my kids. But there's – how could God be moved by the prayer of a guy who kills his own kids? Yeah. You know? Well, if he's repentant. That's intense. Right. God was moved because he was clearly – and that's intense, man. But that's – Man, that's the good news. That's the epitome of the good news. It's like God can forgive anyone. God yeah. can. Can we? Oh, gosh. You kidding me? Yeah. I mean, we with have, people. We have to work at it sometimes. But know, it's sometimes the, so, so when I read about these moments in Scripture, um, I, I think of like, well, well, God could have forgiven Pharaoh. I mean, would Pharaoh have had to live with consequences? Well, God, if King David lived with his consequences, then yeah. we're all going to live with consequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Pharaoh, I mean, odds are, it, like, you know, had Pharaoh done it, had he had Pharaoh given in, uh, I think you know probably we would have well, we wouldn't have had the rest of the Exodus story as it is. But that's the yeah. thing for um, me. I, go ahead. No, and, go ahead. That, and that's the key right there, uh, Rabbi Jonathan. Is that the the crux of the narrative of the Exodus is not just that God brought freedom to Israel, right? It's that God proved Himself victorious over everything worldly of the day. Yeah. Right? And that's the, the crux of salvation. Yeah. Is that in Yeshua's death, burial, and resurrection and his ascension to sit at the right hand of the Father, yeah. um, he isn't just bringing us uh, freedom from slavery to sin. He isn't right. just bringing us redemption from our own mistakes and actions and, and whatever. That's a huge part of it. That's part of the restoration of our relationship with our Creator. Um, but what he was doing was showing his supremacy over everything. Yep. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and that's why that parallel between the Exodus and salvation is so vital and so important. But, yeah, it, it required Pharaoh going down this whole line of just self-destruction to bring about the ability for God to show his supremacy. Not that God couldn't have showed it in other ways, but but God wanted not just Israel to see it, but all of Egypt to see it. And that's why it's so important when Moses is standing on Sinai after the golden calf and God says, I'm just going to wipe everybody out and start fresh with you. And Moses' immediate reaction is, first off, no, I don't want to do this again. Uh, but his, uh. his second... His, his 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 immediate reaction was, but what are the nations going to think? What is mm-hmm. Egypt going to think? Mm-hmm. If you went through all of this trouble to bring Israel out just to kill them in the wilderness, what is the nation, what are the nations going to think? And yeah. we've talked about this in our Bible study on the one to man at CMC is that the what makes Israel unique and distinct in uh, in the world isn't that we're blood lineage of Abraham. It isn't that we were given the Torah. It isn't that you know uh, uh, we have a, a set apart lifestyle or whatever. What makes us unique is that um, uh, that that we have been given a distinct call to be a light to the nations. And I think that's why it's so important that we see over and over again Moses' response is, but what are the nations going to think? If you do this, Adonai, if you do this to your people, what are the nations going to think? How will you win them over? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's um, that's awesome. I was uh, I was actually going to kind of change the, the turn the, the tide of the conversation to uh, just some 
interesting thoughts and and, re, and reading. Uh, and I'm I mostly read from the TLV. So when I'm uh, looking at a lot of the way things are worded, um, I am pulling from the TLV primarily, especially on this podcast. So just for those of you who um, or maybe be reading in a different Bible translation, are like, well, wait a second, that's not how it's worded in my Bible. Uh, in Exodus seven twenty one. This is a question I'd actually talked to uh, Rabbi Eric uh, the other day about. Uh, you know, the Nile's just been turned to blood, and it says, when the fish... Uh, so, you know, the water's been turned to blood um, inside of Pharaoh and all his servants, uh, the whole Nile. And it says, uh, when the fish were in, when the, uh, the fish that were in the river died, the river became so foul that the Egyptians could not drink water from the river. The blood was throughout the land of Egypt. To me, it's the way that's written is kind of funny. Because it's almost like it wasn't until the fish died that the Egyptians were like, "What? No, man, we can't. Sorry, can't drink from this." It's like, wait a second, this whole river's been turned to blood, and that's not your immediate uh, turn off to <laughs> drink, yeah. to drinking uh, the water. You got to wait till the fish died. Um, and so, uh, you know, Rabbi Eric pointed out to me the uh, the other day that the um, you know the the, the the Egyptians had a deity, a, a fish god. Um, it starts with an H. I forget the name. Yeah. But but anyway, it's not. A, I, I know someone someone had, yeah, someone had made uh, the. Uh, I, they were like, oh, it's it's, it's Dagon. I'm like, no, no, it's a different god. Yeah. I think because yeah, the the Egyptian fish god represents something a little bit differently. Um, is worshipped for a different reason than the one right. uh, the reasons Dagon are. But um, and of course, there's the idea that you know the ancient ancient societies had no problem drinking mm-hmm. blood. Yeah. So you and think that, they did for a time. Until uh, uh, well, maybe for an, a few hours, maybe you know, until the fish started dying. I don't, I don't know. One um, of the things that we, that one of the big things that happens during these first fourteen chapters that we haven't touched on is, um, uh, is 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 the Passover. Yeah, which, um, which I think is interesting. First off, on one hand, because I love how God says this is the head of the year for you. So actually, you know, most people don't know that for the, for the for the for uh, the Jewish people for for Israel, um, uh, the the head of the year starts. Uh, with Passover uh, just in before, Nisan, yeah, Nisan just one, before, yeah. so it's actually in the spring, which actually makes sense when everything's blooming yeah. and budding. That God would begin the year, yeah. Uh, whereas you know, on the Gregorian, the Roman calendar, everything's you know kind of dead <laughs> with uh, winter. But that's that's for another conversation. But um, I, I, I love the idea in the in, in the Passover, which is something that I never knew until I started until I was in Messianic Judaism. Uh, and this is why Messianic Judaism is is so important. I think understanding the fullness is. When they had to take in the Passover lamb, which had to be sacrificed, every family had to, you know, sacrifice a, a lamb. David, they had to keep that lamb, right? For yeah. s- and now, a little baby lamb, and it was essentially treated like a pet. And I can't imagine we got these four feral cats behind our house, and all we do is feed them. That's all we do. We, they don't come in the house. You got plans for these cats? No, the, the plan is we feed them. And they come around, and the kids watch from the window and name them, and they think it's a wonderful. That's just with these feral cats. Yeah. You bring a lamb, and if we brought a lamb into the home, yeah. and Yossi and Kess, I'm look, I'm thinking about my two kids, and we had to bring a lamb in, and then have to tell Yossi and Kess that we're gonna have to kill this thing. It, it's such a messianic shadow, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Yep. You know, I think it's just a really one of my the most beautiful parts of the Passover was how God was teaching Israel that early on about. What God was going to eventually have to do with yeah. His Lamb, yeah. right? Yep, uh, I, I just love that. You know, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot here in this part. I think uh, how many days they keep it? 
four. Yeah, four days. Yeah. And it's it, and uh, yeah, and and they kept it had to come in your house because you had to keep an eye on it at all times. It had to be perfect, spotless, without blemish, no broken bones, no damages, no wounds, nothing. Um, and and it was treated as part of the family, just like we treat pets. You know, it was treated as part of the family. And uh, and then you had to, like this when when my kids were little, we had a uh, we were renting a house in uh, uh, Silver Hill, Alabama when we first started the congregation. Uh, we were there for like three years in this house and we rented this house and the, the guy that owned it had a, like three or four acres of land and a couple of houses on it that were all rental units and in between was this big open field and uh, he had he kept sheep out there um and when he first brought the sheep out uh or the lambs out and started raising them out there we were like all right kids look there are lambs out there do me a favor don't name them (laughs) right because they're the cutest little things and they're like why not i said well because he's raising them to eat them so one day you're going to be sitting here thinking oh where is you know uh uh where's elise (laughs) yeah where where is you know whatever lamb and uh and then all of a sudden it's not going to be there and you're going to be upset and you're you know we had to explain to the kids why you you know what the purpose to these lambs were and so you think you bring these into your house and you know lambs are kind of cute i mean they're kind of disgusting but they're kind of cute poop a lot the meat is phenomenal um (laughs) but one of my favorite proteins to eat but the the the, they're they're cute and you're going to bring this little lamb in your house and you got to raise it uh for four days keep an eye on it and then you got to kill it and then you've got to eat it and you know that it's it's a a sacrifice in a very literal sense um uh, uh, beyond just making an offering before the lord you're sacrificing of something that's now become kind of a part of your your life a part of your family um yeah, and hard. as you said, it's a great foreshadowing of uh, a messianic foreshadowing because that's exactly what happened with Yeshua. Yeshua for for three years and change was uh, watched and uh, uh, was um, uh, they were checking to make sure he's living up to the the prophecies and doing this and that and the other and so on. A very literally a very similar scenario, and then he offers his life for our sins in a very yeah. similar situation to the lamb that was offered for uh, Israel's freedom from Egypt. All right. Well, it, uh, had a great time. This was a phenomenal yeah. conversation. Uh, obviously, 14 chapters, give or take, of, of Exodus can't cover every little minute detail. Yeah. Um, but uh, phenomenal conversation as we are now in the thrux of this season uh, in the Torah cycle, reading about the Passover and the Exodus narrative itself. So thanks for joining us, and uh, we will see you guys next time. Thank you for listening to the Messiantics podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can be notified every time we drop a new episode. And be sure to follow and interact with us on social media at Messiantics Podcast.